Today I am continuing to teach on a series that I've entitled Observing All Things. And this is what Jesus told us to do, is to teach people to observe all things that He's commanded us. And I've made a criticism of the church that we have basically not been preaching the whole counsel of God. We haven't been taking a stand on moral issues, on things like evolution versus creationism. Most ministers just stray away from this because the people who are claiming evolution claim to have the high ground that they are intellectuals. They know all of these things. It's scientific, and yet it violates the Word of God. So one of the things that I've been doing is bringing in some of these experts to talk about things that show that evolution is not fact. It is not proven. You will hear things like that, but it's not true. <clears throat> and one of the things that I'd like to share with you today is I did an interview with Dr. Carl Ball a couple of years ago, and he has a museum entitled the uh, Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas. And the reason he located it in Glen Rose, Texas is because he was an evolutionist and he believed in evolution, and yet he believed in God at the same time. And he just somehow or another thought that there was a disconnect, and he was going by scientific data and uh, discounting what the Bible says, the obvious truth of a six-day creation, and he just was going with, uh, you know, quote-unquote science. And then he led a, uh, I don't know what the proper term for it is, but a dig, I guess, or some kind of an expedition where he was a teacher and he took his pupils and they went to Glen Rose, Texas. And as they excavated, they actually found dinosaur prints in the rock along with human footprints. I mean, where a human footprint had been stepped over by a dinosaur. And when he saw this, it just blew his mind and it sent him back to the drawing board. And after he got through studying, he came to the conclusion that the evolutionary model is wrong. And there's a quote in here. I won't try and mention the name of the person, but one of the most famous evolutionists in a debate said that if you could ever put man and dinosaurs together at the same time, it would completely disprove evolution. Well, that's been done. And I want to show you this interview that I did with Dr. Ball. Now, this is a lengthy interview, and this is just a portion of it that you'll be seeing today, but it will actually show you a human footprint and a dinosaur footprint right together. They stepped on top of each other. And there are multiple of these uh, footprints in Glen Rose, Texas, but it's not limited to Glen Rose, Texas. They've also been found in other places. So I think that this will really bless you. And I tell you, the, the reason I'm doing this, the scripture to me is, is sufficient proof for creationism versus evolution. But for those of you who don't believe in the Bible uh, alone, or it's not the sole authority, and you think that there's these facts that prove that creationism is wrong and evolution is right, well then here is some of those facts that will prove evolution wrong. If you would open up your heart and listen to this. I came to Glen Rose because of the human and dinosaur controversy. Mm -hmm. Built the museum because if man and dinosaur did live contemporaneously, the theory of evolution is bankrupt. This defines and illustrates creation, scientific creation, as well as biblical creation. This was discovered in the spring of uh, 2000. We excavated seven human footprints in that same vicinity. Here's the human footprint with a great toe. Second, third, fourth, 
little toe, there's been compression in the human footprint because then the Acrocanthosaurus dinosaur stepped on and intruded into the human footprint, pushing some of the consolidated mud up into the human footprint. We ran this through spiral CAT scan at two professional facilities. The compression density is under the human footprint, under the compressed material, under and around the dinosaur footprint. That is genuine. Here we have man and dinosaur not only living at the same time, but interacting in this footprint. I, I want to know what the real facts were. That's the reason I established the museum. That's the reason I came to Glenrose. Well, let me go back to one of the points that you made. It, um, and I don't know if you can say this concisely or not, but the uh, Noah's flood is really the explanation for so much of the uh, stuff that the evolutionists say about dinosaurs. Yes. Because they believe that this happened millions and millions and millions of years ago. But you are saying that with the pre-flood conditions, yes. that animals, plants, like I saw in a previous video of yours, that you filtered the light and let only that one wavelength through and put a higher pressure, and plants would grow astronomically oh, yes. big. That's been demonstrated in the secular literature. Matter of fact, you've got a footprint right over here I'm looking at that, uh, tell, us, tell us about this footprint. Oh, and, yes. And, well, everything was larger in the past. In the pre-flood world, I wanted to know why dinosaurs got so big. I wanted to know why Lepidodendron, which is a lycopsid club moss, that today gets 16... Now, would you say that again? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, what was that? You're talking about a plant or oh, an okay. animal? A, a plant, Lepidodendron, the fossil Lepidodendron in the fossil record... Are you speaking English? Uh, yes. Okay. ...is a lycopsid club moss. We grow them today, but they get 16, 18 inches in height. But in the fossil record, they got up to 120 feet tall. Wow. How could things get so big? Everything was larger in the past. There are remnants well, the Bi of... the Bible even verifies this, talking about the giants. The there giants, were giants in the, the earth land. before the flood. And of course, Goliath, there's difference of opinion, but some people believe he's at least 9 foot 9 on up to 12, 13 foot tall. Let That's me, in the Bible. Let me tell you a story. We have a footprint. Now to the controversy at Glenrose. That's what brought me here. Mm -hmm. I had heard and did not believe that uh, there were human footprints with dinosaur footprints. I still held to long age. So I came and directed that excavation. And my mentor said, all you have to do is excavate one original dinosaur footprint. Well, I assimilated the team. I did excavate that dinosaur footprint. But the team said, let's keep going. So we did. Over the course of four days, we had excavated, at that point, 19 dinosaur footprints. And you just found these in the rock uh, fossil layer along the... Uh, the Paluxy River. Paluxy River. Well, I knew where to Glen start. Glenrose is where? Tell everybody where. Glenrose is southwest of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, about an hour and a half mm -hmm. southwest. And dinosaur footprints have been known, and there was a report that human footprints were among them, but I didn't believe it because... According to evolution, the last dinosaur died out 64 million years ago, and the first human didn't appear even in primitive form 
until two and a half million years ago. Oh, really? So and that's a variation of 60 plus million 60 years? 60 plus million years. And sophisticated man didn't appear until a few tens of thousands of years ago, according to evolution. And I held to that, even though I held to it in a creation sense, a progressive creation sense. But I was wrong. Like a theological evolution, that God well, caused it to happen over long periods of time. The theistic evolution, that God caused it, but he used evolution, but then there was another form of it that I had accepted at that point in time, and that was progressive creation. That God, and some people still hold to this, that God created each life form, but he did it over vast periods of time. Created a life form, he let uh, that settle in, and later he introduced another life form, let that settle in, and finally he said, I've got this just right. So he created man. And I held to that. But as we peeled back these layers of rock and I delicately excavated through the clay, there was a human footprint 17 and a half inches from a dinosaur footprint. And that blew my mind. Now you discovered this, or was yes. it headed already? Oh, no. been, I, I, discovered I discovered it. You unearthed it. Oh yes, and 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 took the team and I. They did most of the work, and I got the credit. You know, you know, you were the, leading the. Oh yes, yeah. and directing it, and and they were very happy to be a part of it. They peeled back the limestone, and then I delicately excavated through the clay to the next layer beneath, and then I continued the excavation, and there were four of these prints. And I called the press, and uh, I expected them to come down in a few days. They flew down by helicopter. The next morning, I went to the airport uh, to fly out of town, and the front page of the newspaper, uh, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, said, track step on evolution, mm. front page, and they reported now, this. When, what was the date of this? That was uh, early April. Uh, 19, or late March 1982. So uh, I had to accept it, but I didn't sleep for four days and nights <laughs> because it completely skewed my paradigm. It blew my mindset. Even though I was a creationist, I still held to the long ages. Mm -hmm. So we're back to the biblical record. And there were giants in the earth before the flood. We have a footprint from the Looters Formation. That's out in West Texas, north uh, of Abilene. That's the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. I got uh, relatives live out there. All right, and according to evolution, that hard sandstone of the Permian Basin is about 230 million years old. Well now, earlier I said on your program that according to evolution, man didn't appear until two and a half million years ago, even in primitive form and in sophisticated form, he didn't appear until a few tens of thousands of years ago, according to evolution. A footprint, in fact, a series of footprints, well, we have one of them. A footprint was found in that Permian rock. We took that to laboratories, two separate laboratories, and ran spiral CAT scan analysis, reading through the rock to determine if the print is genuine. You see, back during the Depression, at about the time I was born, uh, a man named George Adams verified 
the human footprints. They had been found by Charlie Moss in 1918 when he returned from World War I. Now this is out in West Texas, Permian no, Basis? back or, to Glenrose. So putting Glen these two stories together. Okay, gotcha. In Glenrose, the dinosaur footprints had been found and then the human footprints had been found by Charlie Moss. Now that was prior to your excavation. So had you heard of this? I had heard of it, but, but didn't, dis didn't believe it. You didn't believe uh, it? I discounted it. Because it didn't fit your evolutionary model. No, it didn't. So a man named George Adams learned that he could cut human and dinosaur footprints out of the river and sell them for $200 during the Depression. Hmm. That was a lot of money. Yeah. Still is a lot of money. So he found another way to do it. He was good at what he did. Under a shade tree, he carved about half a dozen dinosaur footprints and two or three human footprints and sold them. And they were pretty good. But when a genuine dinosaur or human footprint is discovered, if you take that into the laboratory, the compression density made when that creature, man or dinosaur, stepped in the mud, the compression density creates uh, a a factor that it is, the lines are more dense mm -hmm. and it shows in the rock, they're compressed. Right. Not only under the print, but as the foot moves beside and ahead of the print. So we took one of his carved prints to the laboratory, no compression whatsoever. But everything I'm gonna show you with the footprints here, we've taken to the laboratory. Every one of these footprints has compression density under and to the side. They're genuine. We have a footprint from the Permian Basin that is 17 inches long. And when we first got it, I said, I'm going to take this to the laboratory, but it's not going to show any compression because I don't believe it's genuine. Mm -hmm. We took it to the laboratory, two of them. It is absolutely genuine. The compression is there. And isn't that too big? Well, there were giants in the earth, the Nephilim, mm -hmm. but then I remembered, back in about 1987, I was listening to CBS, National News. They said in Mozambique, the missionaries reported that a girl came out of the bush to get her shots. She's 13 years old, 10 feet, 4 inches tall. Wow. You said Goliath was about nine and a half. I think you're right. Six cubits in a span. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, Here's this girl, 13 years old, 10 That's feet, amazing. 4 inches tall. Her foot would be longer than 17 inches. You know, I was at a, a boxing match in Fort Worth when I was 18 years old, and there was a man down close to the ring who was bald-headed, and it looked like he was standing up the whole time. And I wondered, why is this guy standing? And then he stood up. He'd been sitting down. And he was a giant, and I ran down and stood next to him, and he was called the Corn King Giant. I don't know if you ever heard of him here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but there was a Corn King, some product, and, and uh, he promoted their product. And I stood next to him, and my eyes came to his belt buckle. Oh he my. was nine foot, nine inches tall, nine, and nine. I stood next to that man. So I know that those things can happen. And I'm looking at this footprint right here. And even though most people would uh, say that that couldn't be true, you've had that uh, uh, scan on it. Oh, yes. And the compression is there. That is an accurate footprint. And 
Let me just go back to one thing that we said at the very beginning of this, uh, that if man and dinosaurs were supposed to be separated by millions, over 60, over 60 or 2 64 million, million years. If they were supposed to be separate, what does that do to evolution if you can put a human footprint with a dinosaur footprint? I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Dr. Ernst Mayer, considered the world's leading evolutionary biologist, Dr. Ernst Mayer of Harvard, said in a debate with Dr. Dwayne Gish, a leading creation scholar, uh, member of a Nobel laureate team. Dr. Ernst Mayer laughed in the debate and he said to Dr. Gish, the creationist, if your friends along the Paluxy can actually, Paluxy River, Glen right. Rose, Texas. That's where we are. That, that's the reason this museum, that's the reason I selected Glen Rose. Uh, the Dallas Times Herald a few years ago wrote a front page article stating, Glen Rose is the scientific battleground of the nation. Meaning that if we can literally prove that man and dinosaur lived at the same time, evolution is destroyed. So Dr. Ernst Mayer said in that debate, public debate, if your friends along the Biloxi River, Glen Rose, can actually prove that man and dinosaur lived contemporaneously, he said, Dr. Gish, that would devastate our entire theory of evolution. We would have to start all over again. Amen. And, and he admitted that. Amen. And it does. This week I'm interviewing some scientists and I'm having them present these things from a totally secular standpoint. Now I will admit that these men, Dr. Carl Ball at Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas, and Dr. Grady McMurtry, I admit that they are believers and they do love the Lord and praise God for that. But they aren't presenting this from a religious, faith-oriented viewpoint. They're using scientific fact to make this. On our programs last week, I played an uh, interview that I did with Dr. Grady McMurtry, and this man talked about the waters claved. He has a series on that, and he showed these rifts that go throughout the whole earth and divided the continents and the sediment deposits, and he talked about a lot of really, really good things that blessed me. But as he talked about Noah's flood, when the uh, fountains of the deep were broken up and these rifts happened and these continents began to drift, when he talked about those things, he also talked about uh, that this caused an ice age, how that this, all of this volcanic activity and all of these things, you know, um, just totally caused an ice age. And this is where the ice uh, age came and it didn't cover the entire earth. He's got a map that shows where the extent of this was. And uh, I believe that this is very um, pertinent to us today. You know, much of the global warming debate and stuff is, again, using an evolutionary model, believing that the earth is fragile and all of these kind of things. And, and Dr. McMurtry will go back and show you the extent of how far the ice age used to extend, how that there has been a warming trend and different things. And this will apply to a number of different things that we're dealing with today. And I think it'll really bless you. You have a lot of uh, things on creationism way off the topic of just Noah's flood. Oh, yes. I mean, literally talk on 50 subjects in a, in a moment's notice. That's awesome. But we have a whole two-hour presentation on why global warming is not true That's and not good. caused by people. But this map, you've talked about the ice age that occurred after the flood. Now, this map, regardless of whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, makes no difference. 
This map shows the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the northern hemisphere in the past, period. And the southern hemisphere, it's irrelevant because there's nobody down there at the end of the flood. You know. All right, so Grady, the, is this accepted? I mean, would even the evolutionists accept that this is the maximum extent? Yes. And I, I, now, I've been in Russia many more times than you have, but I have been between St. Petersburg and Moscow where the ice stopped. Mm-hmm. Ter- terminal moraines, just like in Ohio, the terminal moraines. Think about it. This map shows you the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the past, regardless of whether you believe in creation or evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And you will notice the ice only gets as far south as the Canadian-U.S. border, except for the area right around the Great Lakes, basically, and New England. It covers sea ice, Greenland, Iceland, of course. It covers Ireland, Scotland, England. It covers Scandinavia, smaller portions of northern Russia. But again, the ice never got as far south as Berlin. Mm-hmm. The ice never got as far south as Moscow. And of course, this map also shows us how the people came from the Tower of Babel experience and got to North and South America. They simply walked. But the fact of the matter is that the Ice Age is not nearly as catastrophic as people have been taught or influenced by things like Hollywood-made movies. It simply isn't true. So if you accept that idea, well, then that uh, lends itself towards evolution or something because human life couldn't have existed. Over here is Israel, and it's way far south. Exactly. You see, again, Job is written 350 years after the flood. It's the first mention of ice and snow in the Bible. That's in the middle of the Ice Age, because, again, it's about 700 years, so Job's right in the middle. But you'll notice they never even saw the ice and snow for the first few generations. And how did how did the animals and the people coming out of the ark survive? Well, they're over here. Mm-hmm. They're nowhere near the ice. Yeah, up here would be Mount Ararat, somewhere in the over here. Okay, this is Turkey. So I was close. Yep, uh, only about a thousand miles off. No, no, you were only a couple <laughs> hundred. But the fact of the matter is that they then migrate to what becomes Babel, Babylon in mm-hmm. that area, mm-hmm. Tower of Babel, for 150 years. Now, the animals have already started to migrate. They come out of the ark, and the wild animals migrate immediately. The domestic animals primarily stay with the people. But immediately, the wild animals will start to migrate. They get a 150-year head start on the people. So they're already going all the way around the world. 150 years later, the people start to migrate. Now, if I can just show you something here, because you've got to be able as a Christian to answer these questions. You know, how did people... So if the Bible's right, how'd they get from the Tower of Babel to North and South America to become the Incas, or how'd they get to be the Aborigines in Australia? Well, during the Ice Age, you're sucking tremendous amounts of water out of the oceans into the polar ice caps. You, you know, there's so much ice in Antarctica, it literally pushes the entire continent down. That's how much ice is there. And so what happens is that the ocean level drops two to 300 feet. Remember the continental shelves that were dry at creation? Well, during the flood, everything's covered. But look right here, for instance. Now I'm going to go back to this. Do you see these little lines in the continental shelf between Borneo and Malaysia in here? Mm-hmm. Right here you're talking about? Yeah, these little, little lines right there. Okay. And there's a few right here, too. You can see right there. Uh-huh. Right there. Those are river canyons. Now, you can't cut a river canyon underwater. That, that shows that during the Ice Age, which lasted about 700 years, that as the water level goes down, wet mud layers are exposed. They're going to erode quickly, initially, and then dry out into harder rock as they're cut. But this shows that river canyons are being cut down here during the Ice Age, 
but you've got a land bridge from Southeast Asia to Australia. And then if we go over here, look at the land bridge that exists from Siberia to Alaska is mm -hmm. wider than the state of Alaska. Yeah. And then if you take a look at the map with the glaciation, you notice that that area, is, there's no glaciers during the Ice Age. That people can walk here and walk down into North America, walk down into South America, because there are areas where the ice doesn't exist there. And so you have these great land bridges. And then when the ice melts back to where it is today, the end of the Ice Age, these continental shelves get re-inundated. And when they get re-inundated, the people are then isolated. When the continents were fitting together and the hot rock, hot water come up from below. Now there's some other things we need to really take a look at in the Indian that are very interesting, but in the Atlantic here, think with me. When this material comes out from the middle, mm -hmm. then the oldest material should be on the edge near the continents because new material would be coming out of the middle, correct? Right? Uh, so say that again. Okay. I'm not sure I got new, you. Well, new material would be coming out of the middle, right. but as they're moving apart, that means the older material should be at the end That's near true. the continents right. because new material would be coming out of the middle, correct? Mm -hmm. But if, if you do potassium argon dates on these things, and, and I will tell you, potassium argon is not reliable, but I'm simply saying the evolutionists have done this. We've taken uh -huh. cores. And what you find out is the oldest material is in the middle and the youngest is at the, at the edge. That's contradictory to their position, which again shows there's a problem. And how do they deal with this problem? They don't. They ignore it. They have no way of doing it. And of course, you probably have heard about um, magnetic reversals and the Earth's magnetic field yep. has flipped north uh -huh. and south. First of all, that's again a fairy tale for adults. There is absolutely nowhere in the bottom of the Atlantic that you can take a compass and have it turn 180 degrees around. What you have is, the, first of all, doing cores, and this has all been cored, you find that there is a totally random pattern. What you find is that there are strong north-south and weak north-south, and they, they say the weak is reversal. But it's not. It's not a reversal, it's just a weak. And we have actually found that if you have two strongs, you can induce a south in between the two pointing north. So they don't have a leg to stand on with mm -hmm. this stuff at all. And this shows that it all happened very quickly in only one year, as the Bible says. And when you take a look at the Indian Ocean here, here again we have a crack. But notice if you follow the crack back here, now you'll notice there's a split. If we take a look here, you can see there's a split in the Indian Ocean uh -huh. that comes to the Atlantic. But if you go to the Indian Ocean, you have a split going east and west. But if you follow that crack north here, it's just one crack goes to about the equator, turns about 45 degrees northwest, goes towards Saudi Arabia. Then it turns, comes right straight down the middle of the Gulf of Aden, and you can see the crack is getting smaller. But it then turns and goes right straight at the bottom of the Red Sea from the south to the north end, getting smaller. But here at the north end at Elat in Israel, that crack turns and goes right straight up to the Jordan River Valley. It goes right straight through the Dead Sea, right straight up the Jordan, right straight through the Sea of Galilee, mm -hmm. right straight up the River Jordan, and starts here at Caesarea Philippi. So is that the end of this crack? So that's where it begins. So, and that's you, not the end, that's the beginning. And so you can say that because of the way it widens out as it goes along? First of all, you can see it starts very, very small, very tight. And of course, initially, what's going to happen? You have tremendous pressure at that point, and a crack starts to form. And it forms what is going south there, the Jordan River Valley, today. Mm -hmm. Turns, forms what is today, the bottom of the Red Sea. And then comes out here, at that point, it is now underwater. Remember, there's one mile of water there now. Mm -hmm. 
And then that crack comes out, goes here, and it actually goes all the way around the world. We'll take a look at it in the Pacific, too, but it's 40,000 miles long. Wow. It's called, altogether, the entire unit is called the Mid-Oceanic Ridge. But I said that there was a sea one mile deep here, and then there was a mile of water that came up from below, correct? Mm -hmm. What's one proof of that? Well, first of all, you can see it here, obviously. But if you take a look from India to Australia, along the south slope of Indonesia, there are two continental shelves. One is a mile deep, and it breaks off and goes another mile deep, showing that as the ocean floor, the water comes out from underneath, the ocean floor sinks, breaks off and leaves a double continental shelf here as well. There's something else that you can see. So the first continental here. shelf would have been the one that was one mile deep, and then as the water mile. came up, it dropped another mile. Because a mile of water came in from right. it has to drop another so you've mile. So you got two continental shelves. And that gives you this double stair step here. And so do you see that anywhere else? You do, because in the Pacific, you can actually see here's a crack coming out of the Indian Ocean and breaking Antarctica off of Australia. Uh -huh. Now, on a round globe, which I do use a round globe when I'm teaching this live presentations, you can actually see that Antarctica perfectly fits into the southern coast of Australia. Again, there's some distortion on a flat map. But on a flat map, the distortion. But you can basically see it. It's just that it's not as uh -huh. detailed as it would be on a round globe. But, but it's still very obvious. But it is quite obvious. And you'll even notice that there are actually double continental shelves along the south slope of Australia here. But the crack goes out across the Pacific, comes up along the coast of California to Alaska, through the Aleutians, through Kamchatka, Japan, the Philippines, comes across New Guinea, out to Samoa, turns 90 degrees at Samoa, goes right straight through New Zealand, and meets itself again here. Now, is there a significance that all of these ridges and stuff are connected worldwide? They show that it was one occurrence it's, versus well, It shows multiple. a lot of things. It shows being one occurrence. And again, you mentioned double shells. Well, you'll notice that from the Gulf of Alaska, along the south slope of the Aleutian Islands to Kamchatka, you have that two-step staircase. That mm -hmm. There's a continental shelf one mile deep, then it breaks off and goes another mile deep. But the same is true here from Kamchatka, past Japan, the Philippines, China, and Vietnam here. Also, though, if you'll notice, uh, Andrew, the, the western continental shelf of New Zealand perfectly fits the eastern continental shelf of Australia, and you can see where there's a crack here and stretch marks where New Zealand mm -hmm. moved rapidly away from Australia at the time of the flood as well. Now, of course, this from here in the Baja all the way around the Pacific here and through New Zealand is a part of the Ring of Fire, the volcanic yeah. Ring of Fire. Uh -huh. But, of course, there's another crack that comes down along here through the Andes that's part of it as well. But you'll notice all these little dimples and dots north of the equator here that are underwater. Those are 20,000 underwater volcanoes. We'd mentioned about how there were so many thousands of volcanoes. Mm -hmm. But you have some like the Hawaiian Islands that actually stick out of the water after the flood. Mm -hmm. But there are thousands and thousands of volcanoes that are underwater. And we can see so many things with this. Now, this is a map of the entire world showing the entire extent. You can see it starts at Caesarea Philippi, comes down the Jordan, down the Red Sea, out the Gulf of Aden, splits here in the Indian Ocean, going around the Pacific there, there's another crack that comes here up the Atlantic, and you asked about where does it end. Well, there's the end right there when it hits northern Russia. It goes sort of past the North Pole, and as I like to say euphemistically, it runs out of steam when it hits northern Russia. <laughs> 
But all these things are clearly visible. If now, you again, the distortion of a flat map. Is this the same point as over here? Well, what this is, see, it comes up here, curves past the North Pole, because the North Pole is not on here. goes up, curves past the North Pole, and ends there. Okay. That is the end of it right there. All right. And That's of course, amazing. the significance of starting at Cesar Philippi is beyond belief. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, this is prior to the nation of Israel and stuff, but yet everything is established in the heart of God. Well, There's and, and remember, this, this is where Jesus takes his disciples, mm -hmm. walks them to Caesarea Philippi, says to them, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And he says, yeah, well, that's what they say. And then he asks one of the two most important questions in the entire New Testament. Yeah, that's what they say, but who do you say mm -hmm. that I am? Mm -hmm. And he's asking that at the very spot where the crack starts and breaks off three continents. It's the very spot where the Jordan River starts. It's clear living water coming right out of a rock. You've been there. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been there. I've seen it. And, and so this is not coincidence. Jesus knew exactly where he was. And of course, as I say, he was there before that crack was. That's right. But the fact of the matter is that this has tremendous biblical significance. And all of this, uh, you were talking about the power of these volcanoes. Uh, uh, I don't want to get you out of sequence on this, but all of this volcano releasing that steam and all of this stuff into the atmosphere, uh, this would account for what is uh, often said by the evolutionist as the ice age, which is well, supposed to be long, Exactly. Long Evolutionists talk about multiple ice ages. They believe in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. The fact is that there was only one ice age. It occurred after the flood of Noah. It was caused by the events that initiated the flood of Noah. Now, so it's, it's not, actually a result of it's, the flood. It's, it's not instantaneous. It's a result of, because what happens is you have this tremendous amount of hot water coming to the surface, mixing with what are already subtropical seas. Remember, the earth is a subtropical from pole to pole prior to the flood. Mm -hmm. And we have the physical evidence to prove that too. For instance, in Greenland in 1883, we found fossilized breadfruit trees. Wow. Well, breadfruit trees don't grow in freezing conditions, you know. And recently, we found fossil insects and fossil dinosaurs within 200 miles of the South Pole. Mm. So clearly, it was a lot was... warmer in the past there. Uh -huh. And so what happens is you have this hot water coming out, mixing with what's already there. When you have hot water, you know as well as I do, you have tremendous amounts of evaporation. The hotter the water, the more water evaporates. Mm -hmm. So it's evaporating very quickly. But you have thousands of volcanoes all going off at the same time. That causes ash and other aerosols to go into the atmosphere and block out sunlight, which causes the atmosphere to cool rapidly. Now, these are the perfect conditions to build polar ice caps because when you have a lot of moisture being evaporated into cold air, you have the perfect conditions for ice snow formation, and the polar ice caps start to form as a result of being in the initial events of the flood. And then, you know, we weren't there. This is our best estimate. Our best estimate is that the ice age starts initially, but again, it is nothing to be worried about initially but it actually increases in intensity for probably about 500 years. This would be past the time of the man Job. And the first mention of ice and snow in the Bible is in the book of Job. And then because the volcanoes settle down, the ash comes down by precipitation or gravity and so forth, the sunlight starts to come back in, the polar ice caps melt back to roughly where they are today. And so the whole thing lasts perhaps around 700 years. 
Now this would be during the time of uh, Abraham, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Abraham's a young man at the time that Job's alive. Uh -huh. So you know, the book of Job is written basically 2000 BC. Abraham would have been a young man at the time. And uh, of course, Job's life. Uh, and so, yes, this is you know from a chronological standpoint when it's occurring. Well, now, here's a total layman asking a dumb question, but I bet there's a lot of other people watching watching this whole thing. Most people kind of consider that the Ice Age was like worldwide. Well, and uh, unfortunately, as I tell people, never get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, Hollywood. <laughs> You know, the, the animated movies and the, the other movies that Hollywood has made in recent years about ice ages and catastrophes of that sort make you think the earth becomes a big snowball. But that's simply not true. Well, it couldn't be if Abraham and the things recorded in Scripture, you know, continued on. That right. wasn't during an ice age where they were. Well, let's take a look real quick. Uh, this is a graphic just to show, again, how the hot water coming out from below would allow the continents to move rapidly. Mm-hmm. Now, Gaios in the Pacific prove again that the ocean floor sank rapidly one mile at the time of the flood. But here's a chart showing some relatively sized volcanoes of the past, and I do a whole presentation on Mount St. Helens and the rapid formation of the Grand Canyon. And that's 1980. It produced one cubic kilometer of ash. But if you take a look at Krakatoa, the sound heard around the world in 1883, it produced 18 cubic kilometers, 18 Now, you know, I've never heard any of these things. Probably many of our viewers haven't. But I guess all of this is documented. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Now, Krakatoa is in Indonesia. The explosion was so violent, it was heard in downtown London, England. Wow, and this is that's 1883. What, it, that's 1883, and that's why it's called the sound heard around the world. However, Tambora is also in Indonesia. Again, these are right on the equator. In 1815, it produced 80 cubic kilometers of ash and ejecta. Look it up. 1816, Europe had the year without summer. It snowed in all 12 months of the year in Europe in 1816 because this one volcano cooled the earth so rapidly that in one year we have snow in all 12 months in Europe. Now, when you say Europe, what part are you talking about specifically? I'm talking about the entire European So continent. that would have been London, Berlin, any of those places? Yes. Wow. And, well, it can get much bigger and much worse than well, that. Well, I've been there in the summer, and I guarantee you, <laughs> for it to snow all 12 months of the year would definitely be a different climate well, than we Mount have Well, Mount Pinatubo now. in the Philippines, again, near the equator, erupted in 1991. It dropped the Earth's temperature, atmospheric temperature, 1.3 degrees in one year. Again, this just shows you the power of volcanoes to cool the Earth. Now imagine what happens if you have thousands of volcanoes all going up at the same time. You're going to get an ice age. And we know, for instance, uh, the super volcanoes that occurred at Yellowstone and other eruptions were even much larger than this. And of course, this is what's happening at the time of the flood. We have super volcanoes erupting, thousands of other volcanoes erupting. So what would you say at the time of the flood, how many volcanoes? We don't even Hundreds? know. Hundreds? Well, You're there's, there's in the area of 30,000, 40,000 on Earth today. The vast majority of them are older. Some are new, of course. Well, this may be off the subject, but here's a question for you that I bet you can answer. This whole thing about global warming and stuff, if all of this ash was thrown into the atmosphere and stuff, and yet the Earth recovered in a relatively short period of time, doesn't this suggest that the Earth has a mechanism to be able to adjust and handle these things and it's not out of control? Well, I appreciate that, Andrew. I have 40 pages in my book on why global warming isn't true and not caused by humans. Mm -hmm. We can't cool the earth and we can't warm it, either one. 
but the earth has a mechanism to be able to handle whatever's thrown at it. Like God, these God has put in mechanisms to handle this, and the two things that drive climate and weather change on earth have nothing to do with humans. Mm -hmm. Sunspot activity on the sun has been documented to be perfectly in line with what happens with climate and weather, and the second thing but is volcanic is, eruptions. But that's our uh, fluorocarbons that are affecting the sun. Nope. <laughs> Of course, people I, I, can't answer that, can I, they? No, and of course, I go into things like that, and including if we're causing the polar ice caps to melt, why at the same time are the polar ice caps on Mars melting? Mm -hmm. It's not us; it's variations in the sun's activity. We've been talking about the flood of Noah, and we have shared some things that I mean are just profound, and. Um, Grady, I want to just make this point. We were talking off camera, but you know, there's a lot of evolutionists who believe in evolution because it's a convenient theology. It makes them not accountable to God. And I can understand that. And there's a bent on it, but the facts aren't there. So they just choose to believe they it. They choose to believe it. But what gets me are Christians who embrace it, and whether they call it theistic evolution or whatever, just because I guess they are intimidated into believing that this is absolute fact and they just haven't examined the facts. And those are the ones that I'm really hoping to reach with these truths that you've been presenting because uh, evolution and the Bible are not compatible. They are 100% incompatible. That's right. And they ch do choose to believe it, as we said, a, a religion of convenience, a way of saying that I can lead a sinless life without Christ. It's a justification for every kind of immorality that they want to practice. So it is a philosophical belief. It is not a scientific belief because science simply disproves evolution. And, you know, this would probably offend the evolutionists, but I've, um, I've offended a lot of people, so I don't mind doing it. But it really is senseless because the facts don't support it. Well, all one needs to do is simply use the argument by design that, that Paul used in Romans 1, for instance, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo used 400 years later and so forth, the argument by design that when you see design, you know there's a designer. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can look at a comb, which yeah. is a one-piece yeah. machine, mm -hmm. and see design, how can you not look yeah. at biological life and realize that it takes a designer to create it? If we were to land on Mars and they found a house that was built, which isn't a living organism. It's nothing complex like any of the stuff that we're talking about. But if you found a house on Mars, I guarantee you everybody would be saying, there's life on Mars, because it couldn't just evolve. It wouldn't have doors and windows, and that's an inanimate object. To see all of this life and believe that it evolved without somebody designing it is uh, senseless. It is not intelligent. Well, that's because, as I say, the belief in evolution is irrational, unreasonable, illogical, and unscientific. It is. And so Christians who believe in it, who aren't believing in evolution because they want to escape God or accountability to Him, it has to be just because they haven't been informed. I well, think. what has happened is the church has not done a good job of teaching creation. They've not only done a lousy job of teaching creation from a theological standpoint and show why it's so important to the Christian faith, They've also failed to teach the science because somehow or another they think science is foreign. Well, the fact of the matter is that the single greatest scientists who have ever lived have always been Christians and creationists. You know, you go back to Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, but you can go to Faraday and Boyle and Maxwell and all these others, Pasteur and George Washington Carver. and it, Every one of them are, you know, the founders of scientific fields, the finders of the single greatest scientific discoveries have always been practically to a man 
or woman, a creationist. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I go to the Grand Canyon, and I love going in the mountains. We four-wheel, and we go to these national parks, and they'll say that 150 million years ago or 500 million years ago, this strata of rock, and, and it's just presented as fact, and they say that this proves evolution, and yet the flood is how all of this stuff was put down. I'd like That's you right. to address that. Well, you have to remember, first of all, with the evolutionists talk about millions and billions of years, it is imaginary. They made it up in their own imagination. There. First of all, they were not there. <laughs> they cannot document it. That's true. Scientifically, you're dealing with a historical event that cannot be scientifically proven. The scientific method cannot be used to do things like that because it's outside of the scope of science, which deals with here and now. Secondly, of course, you've got people who, again, uh, and as I say, the church has done a lousy job of doing this, haven't shown the science behind this, such as we were talking about previously, you know. But let's take a look at what's really in the ground versus what's in the textbooks, because to me, this is critical. Again, growing up in the paleontology laboratories at Berkeley, fossils and, and the various sedimentary layers in which you find the fossils. Mm -hmm. The first thing you have to remember is this. On the Earth's land surface, 75 to 80% is covered with dried out mud layers containing trillions of dead plants and animals that all drowned. Now that ought to tell you that it's a worldwide flood mm -hmm. right there, that this is not slow and gradual accumulation. As a matter of fact, we now know that fossilization is rapid, and you to get a fossil would have to have it buried rapidly. It can't be slowly or it would decay. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, though, of the 75 to 80% of the entire Earth's land surface that is covered with dried out mud layers, that's sedimentary rock, because sedimentary rock is just dried out mud. Mm -hmm. 80 to 85% of that does not even have three layers in the order shown in the textbooks. Oh, so, there's, so their evolutionary model is not consistent. consistent with what's in the ground. You say they show the geological time scale or the geological time column in the textbook and then teach you that that's the way it is in the ground. But that's not true. That is a reconstruction by taking a layer in Africa and a layer in Asia and a layer in North America and putting them in the order they want them. No, really. So this whole thing so about Cambrian and I forget. Well, th those are names. Yeah, but I mean all of these names ascribed to this is stuff that you can't see consistent Absolutely not consistent. Absolutely not consistent at all. Again, 80 to 85% doesn't even have three layers in the order shown in the textbook. What we find are layers upside down, out of order, missing, or interlaced, where it goes older, younger, older, younger, older, younger, according to the evolutionary teaching. Now, do they explain this, or do they, again, just ignore this? They ignore it. They try to hide it. Here's a picture of the Rocky Mountains, and, and here we see layers in the ground. I mean, these are mm -hmm. fairly easy to see layers. Sure. Now, first of all, if you take a oops, beg your pardon, if you take a close look at this, you will notice that if evolution was true, you'd expect these layers to be nice and flat. Because when water lays down layers, water seeks its own level, water lays down mm -hmm. flat. Mm -hmm. But first of all, you'll notice that actually you see undulations. Uh -huh. That these are actually wave-like things. Also notice the alluvial material. That's the that's the erosion material here at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, if those mountains are supposed to three 300 million years old or whatever, according to whichever evolution you talk to, where is the erosion material? Because this is not enough. This only supports a few thousand years. So they've got a big problem. But then if you say, well, it washed off into the rivers, such as the Colorado. Well, how come there's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Colorado then? 
You see, mm -hmm. the physical evidence doesn't support the story. Now let's take a look. This comes from Montana. Now here you see sedimentary layers laid down flat by water, but they're standing basically upright, and you'll notice they're curving, and you'll notice they're not broken. I challenge everybody listening to this program, always, always, always look in the road cuts. It's free research. You've already yeah. paid for it. <laughs> Stop and look. Slow down and look. You see layers on the side of the road. Often they're flat. Often they look nice and planar, you know, and so forth. But if you just keep looking, you'll see undulations. You'll see sometimes they'll turn and meet another at a 90-degree angle. You'll see layers that are standing upright. Now, remember, these were, these were laid down flat this way. But today, you know, instead of being this way, they're now this way or folded. But you can't bend rock. So what does this mean to see so these in This means that these are, are the layers of sedimentary rock, mud laid down by the flood of Noah then folded by tectonic forces, the movement of continents and so forth, after the flood, while they're still wet, and then only after they have been folded, they dry out into hard rock. For instance, here's a nice little section. Now remember that this picture is in the right orientation. So this is basically up and down, but uh -huh. you see these Z-shaped curves. Now again, you can't, you can't bend sedimentary rock, it'll break. This is not metamorphic. Now, metamorphic has been heated, and, and you can bend that. But this is sedimentary rock. You cannot bend it without breaking it, which proves that this had to be done while it was still wet. This comes from the area near San Juan Capistrano. Now, notice here, you'll even see swirls, waves, circular patterns that seem to be swirls that are frozen in time. But remember that that had to be done in moving water. Here you can see layers going straight up and down here. And so this is absolutely rapid. All of that material, not just 10 feet, 100 feet, even thousands of feet, had to all be deposited at one time. This comes from California, but you see some very tightly folded hairpins here in the Sierras. Or here's a nice little 90-degree curve right here, and of course we've got the lady standing there to give you a little perspective on that. Uh, here's another curve. Let's see a little bit better there. And... Uh, this is what I'm talking about with road cuts. Now, notice a couple things here. Notice that there's some folded layers down here that uh -huh. were cut off, and then other layers laid down on top very, very quickly. This shows rapid deposition. Here's another 90-degree curve right here. Here, you see a, the, the, the young lady standing there, and it may not be real easy to see in the picture, but take a look. You can actually see this is a hairpin. Yeah. I put the superimposing here, but you can actually see it comes here and turns very, very tight in a hairpin turn. Mm -hmm. That had to be while this material was still in a very liquid state. Uh, it was mud, but still very, very wet, or it would have been broken. Now, this is what I was talking about with things like rapid formations of things like the Grand Canyon after the flood. Uh, we see this kind of rapid formation all over the world, these folded layers. And it shows you that everything was deposited very quickly. Now, at Colorado State University, there's a great sedimentation laboratory there. Now, this comes from a secular university. Colorado State is certainly a secular university, mm -hmm. correct? It is. But experimentations done there in their great sedimentation laboratory have proven all layers form at the same time and merely extend in the direction of water flow. So what we're saying is this. If you have moving water... 
all the layers, the bottom layer and the top layer, form at the same time, but extend as the water flows in that direction. All layers form at the same time. That proves the layer on the bottom is the same age as the layer on the top. Now, if that is accurate and if that's proven, that disproves evolution. Disproves it? evolution. It shows that what we have are fossils in the ground, yes, dead animals, dead plants from the flow of Noah, buried in wet mud layers. But these layers are often out of order, upside down, backwards. But the, these layers all formed at one time. Now, again, this comes from the Washita Mountains in Arkansas and Oklahoma. You can see sedimentary rock layers standing straight up. This is outside of uh, Denver on I-70. I've seen that. And, but think about it. Those are, look mm -hmm. at all those layers had to come into existence at one time. The entire thing had to be Okay, folded. so this was laid down by water. Had to be laid down this way by water. And then the folding, tectonic forces, folding layers, forced that entire thing to come up. And this is, again, near McCoy in Colorado. Again, you have these tightly folded layer, or tightly uh, deposited mm -hmm. layers here. But again, they're staying practically straight up. Now you can see these different layers, and so this is what, wave after wave of sedimentation? Well, it's, it's either reoccurring waves, or it's, again, all at one time, with, again, all of them being simply deposited by the, the movement of water in one direction. Well, I'm, I may not be sharp enough to catch what you're saying, but I can, I've seen mountains where you see the different colors so the stratas are definitely different. Mm -hmm. Were those all put down at one time, or was a layer put Again, down and all, then another layer? Again, all put down at one time by the flood. And so what accounts for the different colors? Again, this is different kinds of rock. could be anything from limestone to shale to slate to whatever. But uh, I was just going through here. This is near, near Dinosaur Monument. Mm -hmm. Notice that 90-degree turn at the top yep. of the mountain here. But other layers over here folded in a different way. This is an S-shaped mountain yep. and so forth. Now, I want to get down to the uh, Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. Well, those are great examples right there. Well, that's just, these, these are wonderful things, but... That's beautiful. This is Arizona. This is called the Wave. Yes, I've, I've not been there, but I've seen it. And here you see a tremendous... Uh, this is not even the best picture I've got of it, but this is just a tremendous area where you see basically every kind of sedimentation you can in one deposit. You have folding, you have interlacing, you have shearing, you have cross-hatching. Basically, every kind of sedimentation all in one spot, showing that it all happened very, very quickly. Now, uh, this is an area in New Mexico. Again, you notice here are just dozens and dozens of layers that were laid down flat, folded, but then after they were folded, they were sheared off at the top, and another layer folded, or deposit, excuse me, on top, going in another direction. Now what caused that? Again, this is the flood. This is where currents in the water are moving in different directions. This is as the waters rise and come down because you've got 300 days of, 150 days of waters rising, 150 days of it going down. Mm -hmm. You have tidal tsunamis, which after some layers have been deposited and start to fold, then have been sheared off by a, a tidal tsunami. These are all called turbidite deposits. That mean they're all deposited underwater. And uh, let's take a look at the Grand Canyon. Notice right here. Now, here in the Grand Canyon, this is a close-up of the Redwall limestone and the Cambrian Muav layers down here. Notice that they are interlaced. That is to say that they are mixed. You've got one, then another, then another, going mm -hmm. back and forth, showing that this was not the clean-cut thing that evolutionists say of different ages. 
but in fact was simply as these water currents are moving, depositing one layer of material that's dissolved someplace and then another one here, and as the currents are moving back and forth, different layers are being deposited in this order, showing that again, this is not consistent with what evolutionists claim. And at the Grand Canyon, we actually have layers that are missing. For instance, there's 140 to 160 million years missing out here, 10 million missing up there according to evolutionary yeah. thinking. And so the fact of the matter is that sometimes we see very you know, smooth, flat lines, but there's 10 million years missing. Now, think with me for a second about this, because it's very important. When you look at these layers in the ground, such as the one you see right here, think with me. If the one was deposited and another one was deposited later, there'd have to be some period of time during which each layer was exposed before the next layer was deposited on top, right? Mm -hmm. Why are there no soil horizons between them? Now what's a soil horizon? Where some of the rock had eroded into soil. Okay. Why are there no V-shaped erosion marks? Because if these had been exposed, mm -hmm. rain falls on it, erodes a V-shaped erosion mark where water is cutting into the rock, that would be filled in by the next layer of mud coming in on mm -hmm. top, but it's not there. Why are there no animal holes? Why are there no root holes? It shows you that all of this was deposited at one time in a really big flood, that these layers were not exposed one after another after another. That's awesome. And how do the evolutionists deal with this? They don't. They simply try not to bring it up. I guess really the evolutionists are only able to gain the ground that they do because of people being uninformed. And well, that's so just in it. The they, they, they rely on people being uninformed. They rely on being deceitful with their material, tricking people into believing that they're right. They censure science. They censure good science and only show you that which can be interpreted using their explanation. They tell a fairy tale for adults and they deceive people into believing it's real, but when you really take a look at it in depth, you realize it's not, it's fictitious. So it goes back to that people anti-God, wanting to not have accountability, want to believe in evolution. They only look at the stuff that supports this. They only present the things that support their position, suppress or ignore the other information. They knowingly suppress the evidence. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter one. There mm -hmm. are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yep. They know it's not true, but they suppress it anyway. Paul also said they willingly are ignorant willingly. of this. <laughs> yes, and they willingly show. And then we have what are called polystrate fossils. Now, polystrate fossils where we find tree trunks, for instance, growing straight up and down, supposedly, according to evolution. And yet what we have are trunks up to 80 feet long, have no roots, no tops. They're just tree trunks, fossilized, but sticking through many, many layers. And these layers represent hundreds of millions of years. Supposedly they re represent hundreds of thousands to millions. And so how did a tree stand through all of those years of deposit? Yeah. It's impossible. I have a collection of these from all over the world. Uh, Cookville, Tennessee, the Kettles Cook Mine, uh, Kettles uh, Coal Mine. Uh, there's a 30-foot long tree trunk. Its bottom starts in coal with no roots. It goes through a middle layer of sedimentary rock, and it ends in a coal seam at the top, but there's no top. So here's a 30-foot-long tree trunk penetrating three layers. The top and bottom have turned to coal. The middle layer is rock. It's petrified. And yet there's no tops or bottoms, which proves it obviously did not grow there. What happened was it was growing someplace else because of a catastrophic event, such as a volcanic explosion. It was torn off its roots, tops torn off or destroyed, 
deposited in wet mud layers in an upright orientation. Now at Mount St. Helens in 1980 in Spirit Lake, we actually saw the formation uh, of today roughly 40,000 tree trunks standing upright at the bottom of the lake that didn't grow there. They have no tops, they have no bottoms. Specimen Ridge at Yellowstone National Park. The whole ridge is full of tree trunks, stumps. Some are laying down, but some are standing upright. But there's stumps without trees, trees without stumps. Many of the trees penetrate more than one layer, uh, showing that this is all one catastrophic event. It is not slow and gradual accumulation. That is just impossible to refute. I mean, I can't see any argument against it. Well, that's just it. Evolutionary uh, geologists don't refute it. They may hide it, but they can't refute it.